Steve uh, just led us in the recitation of the Nicene Creed. And I went through that this week in the Greek text and counted the words. And 63% of the Nicene Creed is about Jesus Christ. In other words, about two-thirds of the Nicene Creed is about one-third of the Trinity. And rightly so, because the defining question that we all have to face is the question that Jesus asked of Peter, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question is the most important answer you'll ever give to any question, because if you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. But if you get it right, then everything falls into place with glad tidings of great joy. Well, the grand story that the Bible tells, <clears throat> I'm not talking about Christmas card theology. The grand story that the Bible tells of the Christmas story is wonderfully clear. And it begins in Genesis 3, but it goes throughout the Old Testament because there was a barrier between God and man due to sin. And all the Old Testament sacrifices were about the idea of substitution. The lamb that was slain as an object lesson to deal with the ravages of sin and the need for a substitute, someone who would once and for all deal with the sin of mankind. And throughout the Old Testament, this person is called things like the seed of the woman, which is a strange thing, the seed of the woman. It's called, that person is called the Messiah, the anointed one. Sometimes the person is called Lord, with, who is a human being yet with divine attributes. He was to be born of a virgin. He was even to be called mighty God, prince of peace. And over the centuries, God's plan to rescue us became the greatest good news ever. More and more details over the centuries were revealed about this person in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament ends with the statement by the prophet Malachi that God was going to send Quote, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. From Malachi 3. Malachi also said he was going to be an Elijah to the people of that time. Well, 400 years later, the angel Gabriel was sent to an unknown priest named Zechariah, who was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they had no children. Zechariah was serving in the temple and Gabriel told the terrified priest that he and his wife were going to have a child and he was to name him John and that that child would be an Elijah to his generation and he would clear the way before the coming Messiah. Folks, this was just good news. This was good news. God had not abandoned his people. God had not forgotten his promises. God was going to fulfill those promises. And then six months later, Gabriel came to a young girl named Mary. She would have been, if, if she was normal betrothal age, between 14 and 15 years of, of age, average age for girls to be betrothed and then married at that time. Gabriel told her that she was the one whom God had chosen to bear the Messiah. And she said, how can this be since I'm not a virgin? And her expectation would be that the angel would say, we were to get married ahead of time. But that was not the answer, the answer was that the spirit of God was going to implant the, the divine child. And, and we see that the Old Testament promise of the seed of the woman was fulfilled in Jesus. 
Mary's response showed just amazing spiritual courage. She said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And throughout all of this, what is God doing? He's rescuing us. He's bringing about his plan for salvation so that we can be saved. Well, Mary went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth because Gabriel had told her that Zachariah and Elizabeth were to have a baby. And that Elizabeth, who was a much older cousin, probably second or third cousin, was six months along. When she was with Elizabeth, Mary declared that the baby that she was bearing was going to save her from her own sins. She, 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 her own sins were going to be dealt with. She called the baby that she was carrying my savior. Her own sins would be dealt with by God's grace. And for Mary, this was Mary's good news. And just to be clear, Mary was not told that Joseph would be brought into this plan. As far as she knew at that time, she would bear and raise this baby alone with everyone in the world thinking that she was an adulteress. As far as she knew, she was looking at a life of poverty, disgrace, and loneliness. But there's more good news ahead. Mary returned three months later from Elizabeth's house, pregnant. Joseph planned to divorce her, but God, in his grace, appeared to Joseph and told him to marry her. And that this child was going to be the promised Messiah. So Joseph married her, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. So that those prophecies would be fulfilled, not only of a virgin conception, but of a virgin birth. Mary submitted herself to the untrue gossip. And by marrying her, Joseph also submitted himself to the loss of reputation. But God is at work. God is not is, has not forgotten his promises. God is bringing about his plan unfold so that we can be saved. When it was close to the time for Mary to give birth as a result of a decree from Caesar Augustus, Joseph took Mary with him to Bethlehem. They left family, maybe they left family gladly, I don't know, and made a very hard 90-mile journey. And by the time they got there, Mary was in pain. There was no room in the Bethlehem Inn, and they found minimal shelter, maybe thinking that they'd try to find a room somewhere. But to their dismay, Mary went into labor alone, except for Joseph. And Joseph was not a midwife. What was, what was his job? Yeah. What were his hands like? Yeah, not a lot of fun. In fact, if you think about it, not much about Christmas, the real Christmas, is that warm and fuzzy. And then Luke 2, 7 says, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in claws, and laid him in an animal feeding trough, the manger. And if he, if he did indeed help her give birth, as I imagine he did, Joseph would have been the first human to see God in human form. And then Mary the second. And shortly after, the smelliest of all unclean groups in Judea, a gang of shepherds showed up. They were not men that were known to have a good reputation in the first century. But God had appeared to these men and told them that the birth of Jesus would be good news of great joy for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Eight days later, 
Joseph and Mary took the baby to the Jerusalem temple. Four to five miles away from Bethlehem, where he was circumcised. And to their astonishment, Jesus was worshipped by a woman, an elderly woman named Anna. And then he was worshipped by an elderly man named Simeon. Uh, it, it, it's an astonishing thing to them. But they said of Jesus that he is God's salvation for all people, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. For Anna and Simeon, this was the greatest of good news. God is at work. He's not forgotten his promises. Fast forward a couple of years. In order to save Jesus from the bloody King Herod, Joseph fled to Egypt. And then after Herod died, the family returned and not to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth. <clears throat> As Matthew 2.23 states, so that what was spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Fast forward three decades or so to the time when John the Baptist, who had become by that time the Elijah to his generation, looked at Jesus and proclaimed to the, to the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the sacrifice. This is the one who is going to be the ultimate substitute for you and for me. All other sacrifices covered sin. He takes away the sin of the world, which is exactly what Jesus did. We are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. God took the initiative. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that to those who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe on his name. Second Corinthians 521. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might be rescued from our sins and enter heaven. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says it plainly. By grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. All of this. This is the story. This is the big picture. Has been good news of great joy. But there's one more part to the Christmas story that I skipped. It's an epilogue, sort of. An epilogue to the birth. It's the rest of the story in Matthew chapter 2. And I want to rewind back to where Steve read just a few moments ago, to the part where after Jesus' birth, Joseph decided to stay in Bethlehem. It's the city of Ruth and Boaz. It's the city of David. And as I mentioned last week, it's a good place to raise a child. And he probably found work there as a carpenter. But here's what Joseph and Mary did not know. While everything was taking place around them, there was yet another group of men en route to Bethlehem, actually to worship Jesus. This time it wasn't shepherds. They're about as far from the social spectrum from the shepherds as they could possibly be. This group is very, very different. A group of men from the east called the Magi show up at Bethlehem. And today's study is their story. Uh, I, I want us to rejoice in the good news of great joy behind their story. And in teaching this passage, there are three things that I'm going to try to explain. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, talk about the timing of these events that I alluded to. But I want to explain it a little bit more carefully. Secondly, I want to talk about the identity of the Magi 
And then third, I, almost kind of as an aside, but I wanted to address it, the nature of the star. So those are three things I'm going to kind of interweave into our study through these verses this morning. But I'm going to begin by making a comment about the timing of when the Magi arrived in Bethlehem. Most people conflate the visit of the shepherds with the visit of the Magi. So that, you know, the shepherds are saying, hey, buddy, move over. You know, that I can't see the stable more clear, clearly enough. But there are details within the text that let us know that time has passed. Verse 1 says that this took place after, not when, Jesus was born. After, not when or while. Verse 2, in verse 2, the Magi ask, where the king of the Jews is, who has been born, past tense, which means they connect the time of his birth with the time when they saw his star when they were in the east. So they're connecting those two time frames. Verse 7 tells us that Herod took pains to learn from them the exact time when the star appeared. Verse 16 tells us the horrendous detail that we studied last week, and I don't want to go there this week, the horrendous detail that based on the time frame that he learned from the Magi, Herod had all the baby boys of Bethlehem killed, possibly up to three years old. Verse 16 says, two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Verse 11 says that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are now living in a house. They come to a house. The Magi didn't pass the band of shepherds on the road as they left the stable in the manger. So by the time the Magi arrive, Jesus, we don't know how old he would have been. He would have been over a year old, probably closer to two, maybe a little bit beyond that. He would have been walking by this time, I would imagine. That's speculation. But with that chronology in mind, I want us to look at the good news of great joy that the Magi experience. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. Not that the star was in the east. They were in the east. I saw in the west. And we have come to worship him. Now, and most of the key players of our story are introduced to us in verse 1. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Herod the king, the Magi, and, and, oh, and the star. The Magi came from Persia to worship the king of kings. What the Magi did not know was that the king would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as the prophet Micah had said. They saw the heavenly light and they made their way to Jerusalem because to them, where do you find the king? Answer, the capital city. They didn't go to Tel Aviv. They went to Jerusalem. So here they are. Okay, come on. Let's back in the first century. Herod reacts to their question. What was their question? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, when Herod hears that foreigners have arrived and are asking that question, verse 3 tells us he is troubled, disturbed. Last week, we talked about how bloodthirsty King Herod was. And I gave you a mugshot of one of history's most notorious characters. I mentioned that he had murdered his wife 
Mariamne. He murdered his mother, Alexandria. And I miscounted last week, and I'm going to have to correct what I said. I said he murdered two of his five sons. He murdered three of his six sons. Miscounted. Here's another historical detail that's helpful to know. Herod was not the rightful king of the Jews. He had aligned himself with, with Rome and was given power, but he was from a parallel family, the wrong family line. And that meant that most of the Jews did not actually recognize him as their legitimate king. So to have people come from the outside, from outside his immediate geographical control and ask the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod became troubled. And the reason all Jerusalem was troubled with him was not out of concern for him, but out of fear of him. Because when Herod was upset, everybody was upset. So what did Herod do? Verse 4 tells us he called in the experts of the, in, the, in the Old Testament, the chief priests and scribes. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Immediately, answer came back, Bethlehem. Because Micah the prophet wrote, out of you, that is Bethlehem, out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Question asked, question answered. Does that surprise you? Ever wonder about these men? chief priests and the scribes. They're usually not a part of the story when we tell it. But if you think about it, they actually play an important role. Herod, the so-called king of the Jews, knows next to nothing about Judaism. And that's true historically. They did know what the Old Testament taught. And they also knew what Herod was like. Everybody knew what Herod was like. And regardless of the consequences to anybody else, regardless to the consequences to the possibility that Messiah is born, they point him right to Bethlehem. And just as Herod wants to keep his power, they want to keep theirs. Because to them, there's a difference between what they say they believe and what they really believe. If you think about this, I mean, contrast the Magi with the chief priests and Herod, uh, with the chief priests and scribes. The Magi would have been from pagan backgrounds in Persia, and they would have had God's revelation in nature, which was part of what they followed. They would have had a limited amount of Old Testament revelation. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But the scribes had God's word written. They believed it, supposedly. The Magi would have traveled over a thousand miles to get there. The scribes lived between four and five miles away. The Magi were willing to travel months, probably years, subjecting themselves to dangers from exposure, from robbers, the elements. The scribes didn't raise an eyebrow, much less travel. There's nothing more than a collective yawn that is coming forth from Jerusalem, and it was heard in heaven. The Magi, the Magi knew that there was more. There's more. And they couldn't rest until they got there to find it. And then their faith became sight. The scribes thought they knew it all. And didn't even bother to come along. It's just astonishing apathy to God's plan. When it came to knowing the word, the scribes knew much more than the Magi did. But when it came to doing the word, the Magi were the ones that pleased God. 
And here I think is just the coolest thing. You know what God did? Here's what God did for the Magi. They responded to God's revelation in nature. And they responded to what revelation in scripture that they had in Persia. I'll get to that in a moment. And what God did was he took them to revelation incarnate. The word became flesh. And here he is. Now. Okay. So. Herod is now aware of what's going on. He's aware that there's a threat to his kingdom, to his rule. And Herod knows that in general, the child they're looking for was to be born in Bethlehem, but he doesn't know where specifically. And if there's any threat to Herod's power, he's going to neutralize it. That's why he killed three of his sons. So Herod summoned the Magi and he interrogated them about the exact time when the baby was born, and he said he wanted to worship him too. And as I mentioned last week, that was a blatant lie because what we know about Herod is he was going not only to kill Jesus, he would have killed Mary and Joseph, and then he would have killed the Magi. He would have killed them all. That's the kind of man he was. But the Magi were released to go to Bethlehem and report back to Herod, and, and I want to talk for just a moment. I mentioned that there were three things I want to address. Here's the second topic. The identity of the Magi. I want to talk about who they were not. And then I want to talk about who they were. They were not astrologers, at least in the modern sense of that term. They probably did believe that the movements of the stars were intertwined with the destinies of people on this planet. But they were not astrologers in the modern sense. They were not kings. I know, I know. They sang, we three kings of Orientar. Where is Orientar? I don't know. They were not three kings with the names Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. That's a legend that goes back to the 6th century, but not before. In fact, they were not necessarily three in number. Uh, why do people assume that there were only three? Three gifts. There may have been three. There may have been eight to ten. We don't know. Uh, we assume there are three because there were three gifts. Verse 11 says that they came into the house. So I assume this means at the same time instead of it shifts. So that was, you know, probably a, a handful. Maybe it was three. But it's interesting to know that, you know, we, we assume that there were three kings riding on camels. And the Bible doesn't say anything about camels either. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions that go into Christmas card theology, but what you do have is is these are real men, and the Greek word that describes them is I'm going to tell you the word it's magoi magoi. Uh, th let's talk about who they were in history. The magoi were were regarded as the intellectual elite of Persia. They had a reputation for great wisdom. Plato once wrote that he would like to visit Persia and study under them. Where did they get their information to look for a newborn king? We don't know. I'm going to speculate. Because that's what I do. <laughs> Persia conquered Babylonia and discovered that there's this huge population of Jews who had been deported from their land, but when they were given the chance to return, all these Jews decide to stay where they were. And, and you can read their story in the book of Esther. Probably, I, would, I am 
fairly sure that the intellectual elite of Persia would have read the Jewish books. And the Jewish books promised the Messiah. Ezekiel and Daniel pinned their prophecies there. Right? And Daniel and others were studying Jeremiah and other prophets while they were in Persia. Babylonia, but later Persia. Listen to, listen to Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Just listen to this. In the first year of King Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years that was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Oh, there's a lot of rich Old Testament study there in Jeremiah and in Daniel and, and the very precise information that was given about the coming of the Messiah, his entry into Jerusalem when he would be cut off, that is, killed. And depending upon the timing of that event, you go backwards to the probable time when the Messiah would be born. So if there's any level of trust that these men would have in the Old Testament prophets that they would possibly have been reading, and I think probably would have been reading, they would have understood what God's word was saying. And, and, and that this person was supposed to be born. These men believed that heavenly signs were connected with the destinies of people on earth. And I think it's significant to them that to them and only to them, God in his grace stoops down and provides a heavenly sign. It's just like him. And they were ready. I believe the Magi were the kind of people that you hear missionaries sometimes encounter who were saying, we've been waiting for this message. Only God sent them to the message. What sign did they see while they were in the east? Well, here's my third topic. I told you I wanted, wanted to address the nature of the star. How could, how could a star indicate by its presence a specific house on one side of the street as distinct from another house on the other side of the street? Now, let me be clear. I am not trying to deconstruct the star. Okay. What they saw was miraculous. But I am trying to understand what it actually was that they saw. With God, all things are possible, but we want to understand what Scripture does say and what it doesn't say. But there are a couple of big clues that help us here. The first clue is the meaning of the word itself. The Greek word is austere, from which we get astronomy. Okay. The word austere, however, has a wide range of meanings. At the literal level, an austere refers to stars, meteors, and any other heavenly glow. At the figurative level, it was used of Satan, of demons, of the tribes of Israel, of angels, and of Christ. So the word itself doesn't necessarily mean that Alpha Centauri was trekking across the sky at warp speed, dragging planets in its gravitational wake. Now, uh, I know that people talk about conjunctions of stars at this time, and that's possible. 
Um, but just just listen to the rest of this. The second clue comes from the specific wording of our passage. And I'm getting ahead, but in, in, in verse 9, notice that the word austere, the star, or the austere, moved with them. Not that it appeared to move, but that it did move. And it stood over the house. It's not a beam shooting down from something. It's the thing itself that is over the house. So I wonder, instead of our possible conception of a star out in space, this is a miraculous localized light within our atmosphere, maybe like the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites in Exodus 13, or like the luminary luminescence of the Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle, or like the transfiguration glory of Jesus Christ. So whatever it is, and I don't know, but whatever it is, it's miraculous. And God was using this light to take them right to Jesus. So after Herod released the Magi, God reactivated his divine GPS system. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east, you know, they'd seen it, and it would, then it was gone, but they made their trip. They'd seen it. The star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they prostrated themselves. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so here they are with Mary and presumably with Joseph, if he was out working and came in, I don't know. But what would it have been like for Joseph and Mary, for these strange men from the east to show up? You know, there, there are sometimes I, I wonder if Mary had ever thought, does the Lord know anyone who's normal? Because <laughs> this would have been quite the event. Wow. So here they are. And if Jesus is older, but definitely still a baby, they fell before him and they gave him some very unique gifts. And if any of you receive any of these three gifts over the next day or two, let me know. But they received gifts of gold, gold for a king. That makes absolute sense. Frankincense, which is a, a fragrant form of incense that was used on royal occasions. Not your normal scent. It was a, a special thing that was reserved for royal celebrations. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is a puzzling gift. It's a resin that was used in preparing a corpse for burial. It's a very strange gift. In retrospect, it was prophetic of the fact that this baby that was born was born to die. Well, in verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way, which is exactly what they did. And then in verse 13, God warns Joseph to flee. Where? 
So the Magi are told to go, they go home by a different route. Why didn't God say, Joseph and Mary, I want you to uh, go with the Magi. They will protect you. You'll be a part of the caravan. Uh, and it'll be a whole lot more comfortable for you. But no, <laughs> the Magi are gone. And God sent Mary and Joseph south to Egypt. It was a 70-mile trip to the border. I'm sorry, 75-mile trip. And uh, you can almost hear Mary saying, but why did the Lord say Egypt, Joseph? And Joseph saying, I don't know. I don't know. But he was to stay there until Herod died. And they made it, just made it out of town before Herod's soldiers arrived. Look at verses 14 and 15. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. In verse 15, scripture aligns the king of the Jews with Hosea's statement out of Egypt, I called my son. What's that about? Well, in Genesis, Jacob's son, Joseph, was sold by his brothers as a slave, but he rose to prominence in Egypt and brought the whole family down there to preserve them. And there Israel became a nation. So that 400 years later, some 2 million people came out of Egypt. In Hosea, Israel is pictured as God's son who grew up in Egypt. And Jesus came up out of Egypt, born the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, and his life parallels the birth of the nation. So again, Jesus identifies as the king with his people, exactly as he will do one day on the cross as the lamb of God who takes the sins upon himself. So after Egypt, Joseph and Mary settle in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem, where Jesus will grow up over the years, joined by several brothers and sisters until it is time for his mission to begin its completion. By the way, how did Joseph finance all this travel? God financed the trip. He provided gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts that would be used up, but were easily sellable. But gifts that had significance for the mission of Jesus. Well, that's the Christmas story. What's God doing here? If, in order to fulfill prophecy, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, and if, in order to fulfill prophecy, Jesus had to spend time in Egypt, and if, in order to fulfill the sense of multiple prophecies, Jesus couldn't be raised in the city of David, but rather in a place of, of derision, like Nazareth, and if, we could add, you have the killing squad of an oppressive government looking for you, then instead of God just telling Joseph to leave and go to Egypt like he told him to marry Mary, God encourages them with a message some two years later. Now think about this. Two years later, after the angel Gabriel, after the shepherds, after Anna, after Simeon, at a time maybe... I don't know, maybe when life had become more routine and sometimes the spiritual fire 
of those events may seem more like a spark than a flame. I'm not sure. But maybe the glow had rubbed off of some of those promises, but maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But God sends them an encouraging message. A message that was put in motion two years before. A message delivered by people who were outside the political, governmental, geographical control of Herod. A message that makes it clear God's in control, not Herod. God's in control, not Rome. God has not forgotten them. God has not forgotten his promise. God's plan for their lives is on track. Just as the angel Gabriel had made clear to the shepherds two years before. Bringing good news of great joy which shall be to all people. All Bethlehemites. All Jerusalemites. All Americans. All Persians. All people. Isn't it like him to come alongside us in our trials and our troubles and walk us with us through them and sometimes give us glimpses that he's been there all along preparing things that will then emerge where we can look back and say oh lord i see what you were doing thank you thank you he hasn't changed his plans for your life have not changed if you are a follower of jesus christ then you can trust him with the uncertainties you do not know what the year 2018 will bring. But he does. And that's good news. Actually, good news of great joy. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not accepted him as your savior by faith, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. When we place our faith in him, if you have not accepted him as your savior, I am. I'm just so glad you're here. I really am to hear what God has done. I began by saying that everything has to do with Jesus question to Peter. Who do you say that I am? If you get that right, you get everything right. If you get it wrong, everything is wrong. But if you get it right, everything falls into place. The phrase good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. That phrase, all people, all people, that includes you. And that includes me. It's good news of great joy. As 2 Corinthians 9.15 puts it, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the unfolding of this story and its details. Lord, many things to speculate on, many things to think about, but certain things are just bedrock truth. You have given us the gospel in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and through faith in him, we may be saved. Our lives transformed as our sins are forgiven by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that anybody here who does not know you will take the time to look at your word will talk to one of us around him or her lord and would seek to get that issue settled in their lives before this day is out we thank you lord that we celebrate jesus at this time of the year but father we thank you that 
what he has done for us is for every day of the year and every day of our lives. In his name we pray this. Amen.